According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again in John 17. Gospel of John, chapter 17. We started this high priestly prayer last week, and I want to get right back to it again here this week. I want to welcome everybody here today for this very special Life of Christ class. What makes it special? Besides that. Okay, yes, you are here. That makes it very special. Thank you. Beyond that, what makes this class special? Class number 400. There you go. Class number 400. Not many series has reached 400 lessons. We're about halfway there, I think. <laughs> no, we're more than halfway. This is, the, this is the night in which Jesus was betrayed. And so he is in John 17 offering up a prayer on behalf of his disciples. The chapter comes to an end in the beginning of chapter 18. You'll notice uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. And uh, he goes in volitionally, comes out under arrest, and uh, still volitionally, however, and uh, goes to face his trials, goes to face his crucifixion. So this is how close we are, 400 lessons into the Life of Christ series. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to humble our hearts for the authority of doctrine. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we rejoice over this portion of Scripture. Father, we've been in this uh, upper room and walked to the Garden Discourse now for many weeks, and, and we could spend the rest of our lives here in this portion of Scripture from John 13 to John 17 and never exhaust the depths of truth as your Son introduced to his disciples the, uh, the preview of the coming church age. I thank you for the privilege we have now to look back from our frame of reference, from our perspective, Father, uh, 2,000 years into church history with a completed canon, with a revealed mystery of, uh, of church doctrine, Father, we're able to look back now to John 13 through 17 and see the foundation and preview of the church for what it was. But Father, uh, help us now to study it uh, from the context of the night in which it was first given, from the standpoint of disciples who uh, did not know anything related to the coming mystery the coming church. Father, these uh, disciples are, uh, are receiving a message that is making their heads spin. Things they don't know, things they don't want to know. Uh, and yet they're the very things that they need to know. And so I thank you for it. Open our eyes to this truth, Father. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, John 17.9 in the outline. Jesus ends this discourse with a high priestly prayer. Jesus ends this discourse with a high priestly prayer on behalf of the imminent priesthood of the church. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Now this imperative, this is an imperative, by the way. I asked last week, do you have enough confidence in your prayer life that you tell God what to do? Do you, do you give God orders? Do you, do you tell God what he cannot do in your prayer life? Uh, we have patterns of this, Old Testament, New Testament alike. We have Moses who told the Lord what he could not do. Remember that story? We have Abraham who told the Lord what he could not do. We have David telling the Lord what he could not do. We have Jesus telling the Lord what he could not do. 
and telling God what he must do. And hopefully we can learn from these examples and adopt such uh, patterns in our own prayer life. And when we're telling God what to do or what not to do or what he can or what he can't, we're not inserting our own sovereignty and we're not uh, subjecting God and his sovereignty to our sovereignty. We're not saying not your will, but my will be done. Nothing of the sort. Our prayers and telling God what to do and what not to do are based upon his sovereignty, based upon his promises. Because one thing he cannot do is be faithless to his promise. See, and so in those circumstances, we have total freedom to tell God what he cannot do. It may very well be a test. When God told Moses, back up, I'm going to destroy these people. It was a test for Moses, a test that he passed two different times. He, uh, Moses knew that God could not destroy the Jews because God had made eternal promises regarding the Jews. And the idea of starting over with Moses, that wasn't going to work because Moses was from one tribe out of the twelve. God made eternal promises to those other tribes, including the, the line of Christ through the tribe of Judah. So Moses knew very well that God couldn't destroy them, and he told God, so I said, God, you can't do this. It's the kind of prayer life we need to have. Now, this prayer is going to start the same way that the discourse itself started, with a focus on glory. His prayer begins with an amazing focus on glory. And this, by the way, is the same way that the discourse itself started. The discourse started uh, with a, a message related to glory in John 13, verses 31 and 32. Uh, when Judas Iscariot departs, remember in the upper room, the traitor was there for most of the night. He was there to have his feet washed. He was there to take part in Passover. See, and I believe that when you track through uh, and harmonize Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that the best harmonization of that has Judas there for the foot washing, has him there for the Passover, but has him depart just prior to the communion service. That the unbeliever does not participate in communion. The, the unbelieving disciple who's going to commit suicide and be dead before the church age even starts, uh, that Judas does not take part in communion. Communion is only for the church. And so only the 11 believing disciples that are going to pass on into the church age that will become part of the foundation for the coming church. They are the only 11 that will participate in the, uh, the communion. Now, as I say, you've got to harmonize the Gospels to do that. And depending on which Gospel you're reading, it may appear that Judas is actually there for the communion. So relax about that and realize that it's a, it's a uh, Gospel harmonization project. But you do notice in John 13 that he does depart. And when he departs, when he says in verse 27, what you do, do quickly. John 13, 37, uh, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And uh, was he talking to Judas? Was he talking to Satan or both? <laughs> when Jesus said to him, I believe both Judas and Satan, what you do, do quickly. And uh, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this. So when he departs, in verse 30, after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. That is the event that then launches everything we've been studying in these recent weeks in the upper room discourse and the walk to the garden discourse. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now. Now, the language of these verses is, is making, and I, I'm stressing this again and again, you're probably sick of hearing it, but I want you to, to, to see this for what it is. The language here, you have precise time markers. When he had gone out, now is the Son of Man glorified. Because he is going out to fetch those soldiers and arrest Christ and they have uh, the Lord executed here. This is the plan of God. 
when he had gone out. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And so what we have from 1331 all the way through 17 whatever, 1726, okay? From 1331 to 1726, and you'll notice that most of those are red verses, <laughs> okay? Your Bibles are very red in this stretch of the Gospel of John. From 1331 to 1726, you have the preview of the church. You have the preview of the church. Now, it's still mystery, and it's not unveiled until Pentecost. It's not unveiled until, until the Holy Spirit descends and, and they receive the Holy Spirit and then their eyes are opened and then Revelation starts to make the mystery clear. It's still in mystery form. That's why I call it preview. But we have messages that Jesus Christ is giving and He's giving them prophetically. And I find this to be a beautiful thing. Everything He says here prophetically is, is made clear once just 50 days from now, right? Um, seven weeks and a couple of days from now, when, uh, when the Holy Spirit descends, everything Jesus says in these chapters is going to start to make sense. All right? And that's awesome. Because this now is our short-term prophecy. And if everything here comes to fulfillment in just 50 days when the Holy Spirit descends and the church is now unveiled, how confident do you think the apostles are going to be related to long-term prophecy? Related to all of it discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, the, the, the second advent, the tribulation, and uh, I go to prepare a place for you. All these things, long-term fulfillment is, is a lock. We, the apostles are going to have absolute 100% confidence because the 50-day prophecy now is coming, coming true. Does this make sense? You understand what we're saying here? Short-term, long-term. And as the short-term prophecies are fulfilled literally, immediately, perfectly, um, we have confidence for the long-term prophecies as well. We don't mock them and we don't doubt them and we don't say, well, man, it's been 2,000 years. Is Christ ever going to come back? You know, come on. The Bible can't be true. It's taken too long to, to be fulfilled. Well, know this first of all. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, saying, where is the promise of His coming? All right? So don't fall for that. Don't fall for that at all. His prayer begins with an amazing focus on glory. And what's the purpose of being glorified? So you see glory in John 13. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. That's how the message began. It began with an identification of glory. The church age is an age of glory. Which means it's an age of conflict. <laughs> Alright. The prayer starts the same way. The prayer starts with glory. Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. And I find this powerful. He, he dismissed Judas... And he knows the soldiers are on their way. He says, come, let us go from here. He's walking through the, the city, uh, teaching them all through the process of chapter 15 and chapter 16. And he's right now at the edge of the Kidron Ravine. He's ready to cross, ready to go into that garden. And this is the last thing that he says with the eleven. I believe it's, he only takes three of them in, with him into the garden. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that Notice the purpose clause. Why does God glorify us? We can glorify Him. So that the Son may glorify you. The purpose for glory. This is point one. The purpose for being glorified by the Father is in order to glorify the Father. The purpose for being glorified by the Father is in order to glorify the Father. That's the purpose. No other purpose. And this is where we have to stop and take the time to understand what glory is, what glorification is, how it is so different than the world's definition of glory. 
You've got all these Olympic athletes and their gold medals and all their glory. And what's that about? And now we're going to glorify Michael Phelps. We're going to glorify uh, um, that gold medal gymnast. What's her name? Gabby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gabby Douglas. I like her. Um, are we going to glorify these athletes and the things that they achieve? All right. Well, to a point, sure. Give honor to whom honor is due. Give glory to whom glory is due. Give tribute to whom tribute is due. Pay your taxes. Worship God. Okay? <laughs> they, they, they achieve something extraordinary. It is not improper to acknowledge that. All right? Within the scope and boundaries of what is appropriate. Now, I don't worship them, and I don't build altars and shrines and dedicate my life to, to worshiping. Some people do. They turn athletes into idols. Okay? But what does it mean to glorify? Biblically speaking now, what does it mean to glorify? Why do, when God glorifies us, those whom he predestined, he also called. See, uh, hold your finger here and, and let's look at Romans 8 and I'll show you where we're going with this. Because we're going to be here on Sunday morning. In Romans 8, all things work together for good. Hooray. Uh, to those who love God. Okay, I love God, so... Work these things together. To those who are called according to His purpose. Now, this is where we start to get into the theology of the church. Called according to His purpose. What's the doctrine of election all about? What is God's purpose? Do we have any clues to the plan and program of God for the ages? And then we get into these, uh, these wickets, these sticky wickets that cause people to argue theology and then eventually kill each other. For those whom He foreknew... He also, so we have got the doctrine of foreknowledge. He also predestined. We've got the doctrine of predestination. He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. That's what we're predestined to. We're not predestined to get saved. Although obviously if you don't get saved, you're not going to be conformed to the image of His Son. But salvation is only a step in that process. My predestination is to be conformed to the image of His Son. So that means I go through testing in this Christian walk. That means I get uh, the humility knocked into me, see, and the pride knocked out of me. That means that I've got to grow in the grace and knowledge. That, that it's not God's pre, that God didn't predestine me to take me to heaven as a spiritual baby and populate some spiritual nursery in the heavenly places, so that He would be the firstborn of many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. We're back to called again. Why does this keep coming back? We had called in verse 28. We got called in, in uh, verse 30. And these whom he called, he also justified. Doctrine of justification. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this is where we have to stop. And, and we're going to do this on Sunday. We're going to lay out these doctrines and lay them out for what they are. All right? It's important in the dispensation of the church to recognize this. It's unique for the doctrine of the church to recognize this because the election of Israel was something entirely different. Israel was elected. They were a chosen nation, but that's entirely different from your election. And your election is entirely different from Christ's election. He himself is the chosen one. All right? And our election is grounded in him. Okay? So all of these are realms of doctrine that we have to understand. And we can understand because you and I have a New Testament. You and I have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to guide us into all things, even the deep things of God. You and I are church-age believer priests 2,000 years after the foundation of the church. <laughs> and I wouldn't trade that for anything. That we have the theological foundation and the theological superstructure, see, of 2,000 years of church history to, to explain these things and to build on them. Forget you know any of that now. Okay? You are one of the eleven, 
and your head is spinning and Jesus is talking about dying and you don't like that. <laughs> you don't like that. And yet you don't want to ask him any questions. Because if you ask him questions, he's just going to go back to talking about dying again. You don't want to hear that. Because the answers are answers you don't want to hear. And so it's better, just don't go there. Don't think about it. Don't talk about it. Stick your head in the sand. <laughs> okay. And that's, uh, that's actually not an option. Which we saw. Uh, we saw that in chapter 16. Now, glory. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. And all these other things we're very thankful for. We're thankful to have been called. We remember when we were called, because we remember when we got saved. We're thankful to be justified. And we're thankful for that because uh, you know, we understand the doctrine of it and positional truth. And we know that, uh, that I have Christ's righteousness imputed to my account, uh, even as I had my sins imputed to his account. We're, we're rejoicing over that. That's past completed, past completed, and I can relate to that. But also glorified. You realize in Romans 8, these also he glorified is described as a past completed action. It's done. But I have a hard time relating to that because in experience, I don't see it very much. In my experience, I don't seem glorified. And I have many days where I know I don't feel glorified at all. All right. And that's the problem. Because we have associated glorified with a feeling. We have experienced glorification with an experience. We have associated glorified with everybody look at me. I'm standing on a podium. Everybody's impressed and dazzled with how awesome I am. And unless I'm standing on a podium with everybody praising me and everybody gazing in wonder, wishing they were me, then I'm just not glorified. Okay? And we've got a flawed view on what it means to be glorified. What does it mean to be glorified? And so we spent all last week on this one point. And if I review it today, I'll spend all this week on this one point. And I don't mind doing that. I don't mind doing that for 20 Wednesdays in a row if I have to. And to understand that being glorified is not a feeling. Okay? Being, uh, and this is why. Because, see, we've, we've created it as a synonym to being um, praised, to being appreciated, to being admired. Right? To being um, somehow uh, any of those things. And the biblical definition is none of those things. The biblical definition is, under the aspects of dokeo, and doxa is a thinking term, of glory. What is glorious? It is a high estimation. It is a high estimation of worth. A high estimation of worth. And if you esteem something highly, then you glorify it. Okay, something that has glory, something that is glorious is something that you estimate of high value, of high worth. And then when you do things or say things or conduct your life in such a way that you influence others, that you influence others so that their estimation goes up, you are glorifying. Please understand that. Please understand that. You are glorifying God by being here today. Why? Because you have a high value for the Word of God. And receiving instruction from the life of Christ was more important to you today than other things that you could be doing right now. And so you have estimated God's Word highly 
And you are demonstrating that. You are glorifying God. You are glorifying God's Word today. Because you are demonstrating the high regard that you hold God's Word in. Or, <laughs> what's the corollary? You can demonstrate a low regard. Say, oh, God's Word is not important to me. My life's more important. Okay? That's the difference. Whether you illustrate a high regard or a low regard. Use those as your synonyms. And when God glorified you, what did He do? He showed the high regard. The high regard. He viewed you in a high regard. Not for your, the sinful you that you used to be. But for the redeemed you and for the conformed to the image of Christ you that you're going to be. That you're going to be. See? That's hard to do. If you can grasp that, then some things will start to hopefully um, start to gel in your thinking. You know, when you look at your little kid, you know, you look at, um, do, do you just see a little kid? Or do you anticipate what they're going to be when God works in them, when they grow, when they enter into their adult capacity? What are they going to be? See? Because they're not going to stay little kids forever. In fact, they, you blink and they're. 20 years old living overseas. All right. What are they going to be? What are they going to be? Try to appreciate what they're going to be, especially when you're mad about what they are. <laughs> okay? Because what they are now is not what they're going to stay. It's not why God saved them. He predestined them to be conformed to the image of His Son. And He's going to make that happen. The easy way or the hard way. <laughs> All right? Now, that the Son may glorify you. Show the high regard for one another, and we can show the high regard for God the Father. So the purpose for being glorified by the Father is in order to glorify the Father. He saved me. I want to live my life in such a way that I demonstrate the high regard that I have for the one that gave His Son in my place. God the Father has delegated authority over all flesh to God the Son. That's verse 2. Now, that, that certainly shows a high regard, don't you think? <laughs> Even as you gave him authority over all flesh. For the Father to delegate that, that shows a high regard, I would say. So that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. All right, so all flesh, that's humanity. And then all whom you have given him, that's a subset of all humanity. All flesh is all humanity. Belong, every soul belongs to God the Father. Except He's now delegated that to God the Son. And then those whom you have given Me, He may give eternal life. So God the Father has delegated authority over all flesh to God the Son. And our salvation is a transaction between the Father and the Son. Technically and strictly speaking, it's not a transaction between God and us. Yes, God imputes our sin to Christ. Yes, God imputes Christ's righteousness to us. But it's a trans ultimately, it's a transaction between the Father and the Son because when He imputes Christ's righteousness to us, He also gives us to His Son. And His Son provides for us the Zoe, the eternal life, without which we're doomed. <laughs> okay? And Jesus Christ provides us with Zoe, provides us with eternal life, a life we did not have before our moment of salvation. And so, 
hopefully this is an encouragement when we understand that our salvation is a transaction between the Father and the Son. It helps to reinforce the eternal nature, but we can't lose this. We can't forsake this. We can't walk away from this. It's not even a, a contract that involves us anyway. We're not parties to this. The Father and the Son are parties to this covenant. The Father's given us to the Son, and it's the Father's will that the Son lose not even one. And so what we have here is verses that are very much consistent with what the Lord already taught in John chapter 6. John 17, again, All whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. See, it's a subset of all flesh. is those that the Father gives to the Son. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. See, the Father gives us to the Son. It's a transaction between the Father and the Son. It's what we saw in John 6, verse 37 and 39. Remember these? Again, I don't mind. We looked at these last week. Look at them again. All that the Father gives me will come to me. See, under depravity, no one seeks God. But under God's grace, in the mechanism of salvation that He provides through Christ, God the Father draws. And the ones that the Father draws do come. Not one of them is missing. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You are eternally secure because Jesus Christ will not reject any gift that he receives from his Father. He will not be rebellious to God the Father. For I have come down not to do from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose not even one thing. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. You have it now, and your future resurrection is guaranteed. You have it now, and you can't lose it between now and the resurrection. It's a total package, and it depends on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to be obedient to the Father. All right. Salvation is a transaction between the Father, God the Father and God the Son. And for you to lose your salvation means God the Son has to be faithless in His responsibilities to God the Father. Let me tell you something. <laughs> the Savior that died on the cross, if He wasn't faithless then, He's certainly not going to be faithless now. The faithfulness He manifests to provide you that salvation much harder than any faithfulness expected now to keep you saved. All right, thirdly, Jesus achieved everything that could be done on earth in glorifying the Father. It is now time to achieve everything that can be done in heaven in glorifying the Father. Or put it another way, He's done everything in His life to glorify the Father. The only thing remaining now is to glorify God the Father by His death. Verse 4, verse 5. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. It is finished. To tell us die. It is finished. 
There's no further reason to remain here. All that's left now is to die. All that's left now is the final work assignment. And you and I are the same way. God has a purpose for us. We're saved unto good works. Prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How many is that? We're not told. (laughs) None of us are given an expiration date on our birth certificates. Either our physical birth certificate or our spiritual birth certificate. On the day you're saved, God doesn't say, all right, now you've got 26,405 remaining. Count them down and use them wisely. On the day we're saved, we start day one of the rest of our lives. And we don't know how many there are. We, we ought to just live day by day and assume today is the last. The trumpet could sound today. I'm not promised tomorrow because I wasn't promised today. And so today could be the last. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live on an imminent basis day by day by day. Okay? But a final day will come, either through physical death or rapture. And that will be my last assignment. And if it's physical death, that too is my assignment. How then shall I die? Do I want to die in a way that gives glory to Christ? Or do I want to die in a way that diminishes? Do I want to communicate a high regard or a low regard? What what am I going to communicate as I'm dying? Am I going to get angry? Am I going to be bitter? Am I going to be arguing with God? It's not right. It's not fair. Why did I have to get this disease? Am I going to be bitter and ugly? about my circumstances? Or am I going to be thankful? Am I going to be praising God? Why should I not get cancer? Why should I not get that? I mean, who am I? (laughs) Why am I entitled to have it easy? Jesus didn't have it easy. Am I as a slave greater than his master? Why am I entitled to something he wasn't entitled to? Well, you know, I just want it to be peaceful and I want to be in perfect health right up until that very day when I can just inexplicably die for no apparent reason. In my sleep, so I'm not even aware it's happening. Um, with my wife as well. We want to die together because neither one of us wants to be widowed and, and endure the loss of the other. Okay, So, yeah, just sign me up for the most wimped out chicken death imaginable. Really? Well... He's done everything. I've glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. He laid aside his privileges. He's going to pick them back up again. Just a split second after Tetelestai. He's taken up his glory again. All right. The Apostle Paul also exhibited this attitude, as should every believer. As should every believer. And that's, by the way, it's a typo. It's not Job 13.5. It's Job 13.15. I meant to fix that. Job 13.15 and Revelation 2.10. Be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. Job 13.15. Though the Lord slay me, yet will I hope in him. Philippians 1.20. Whether by life or by death, Christ will even now, as always, be glorified. Whether by life or by death. Whether by life or by death. Jesus Christ will now, as always, be glorified. That's Paul's attitude. It should be our attitude as well. All right. So his prayer begins with an amazing focus on glory. Secondly, his prayer celebrates the disciples that he has trained during his earthly ministry. The second portion of his prayer, verses 6 through 19. 
His prayer celebrates the disciples He has trained during His earthly ministry. John 17, 6-19. Let's take a look at it. It's a prayer celebration. The disciples that He has trained during His earthly ministry. I have manifested Your name to the men whom You gave Me out of the world. They were Yours, and you, have, and you gave them to Me, and they have kept Your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. They've come to learn doctrine. And they've come to learn, in some cases, some pretty difficult doctrine. And there were many things they didn't want to pay attention to. We saw that in chapter 16. But they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. These are, and the terms for sent all through this are apostello. Okay? This is uh, going to be a focus on apostolic ministry. God the Father may have dispatched different prophets in times past, in Old Testament times, but he is now apostelloing Jesus, and he and Jesus together are apostelloing these 11, really 12, because Matthias is included as well. All right. So they have uh, received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. You've got to realize how um, uh, shocking this would have been. How long have the Jewish people been waiting for their Messiah? Right? Ever since Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. And before he was pinpointed as being a Jewish Messiah, all humanity was looking for seed of the woman. Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. And then Messiah comes, and what does he say? He says, I'm not here on my own initiative. I'm not here with my own message. I'm here to deliver the message from the one who sent me. You've been waiting 2,000 years. You've been waiting 4,000 years. You've been waiting all this time, generation after generation after generation. Are you the coming one or should we expect another? Are you the coming one? Are you the coming one? Are you the coming one? And then they identify him. This is the coming one. And what does he say? He says, I don't want to talk about me. I want to talk about the one who sent me. And all of a sudden, the emphasis is no longer on the one who's coming because he's here. The one who's coming came. And, and when he came, what did he say? Let me tell you about the one who sent me. The one who sent me. Okay? And that is absolutely awesome. Because not only does it, does it characterize his entire first advent ministry to spotlight the Father. No one comes to the Father but by me. Not only does it put the emphasis back on God the Father, but it does so in a way that pertains to, to you and me, to our stewardship. Because as the Father sent me, Apostello, so send I you. Apostello. And none of us are apostles by gift or ministry, but we're all sent ones by position in Christ in the church age. All right? So this, this is huge. And you can imagine, you, you know why the scribes and Pharisees didn't like any of this. It wasn't up to their theology, their doctrine, their expectations, their worldview. All right? But the disciples, they got it. They got it. Not only did they accept that he was the sent one, they realized that the real impact of this comes in understanding who's the one who sent him. Who's the one who sent him? And what's his purpose? All right.
Verse 9, I ask on their behalf. So he becomes an intercessor on behalf of his disciples. Do you pray on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are you too selfish and praying for yourself all the time? I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. When it comes to your spiritual burden, priority number one is us. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on those on, uh, on behalf of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All things are mine, are yours. That includes these guys. <laughs> okay? They're yours. And yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world. In other words, he's getting ready to depart. And they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. So what's going to happen to these guys once he's gone? Are they orphans? Are they abandoned? No, he's already told them that. He's told them he's going to send them the Holy Spirit. He's already told them that he's not leaving them as orphans. He's already told them that my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. All right? He's spent all these chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, giving them the doctrine that they don't understand this night. But they will once they have the Holy Spirit. And then they're going to go back and they're going to chew on everything he told them on this night. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. This new dispensation, <coughs> the new church, bears the name of God the Father. Just as Jesus bears the name of God the Father. The firstborn son bears the Father's name. The firstborn son has the full inheritance entitled to everything that belongs to the Father. And that's what we have. All right. So his prayer celebrates the disciples that he has trained during his earthly ministry. First of all, point one. Should have made that two points. That's kind of wordy, isn't it? All right, point one. The manifestation of the name Yahweh to Moses was a significant milestone in the preparation for the establishment of Israel. You remember that? Exodus 3, verses 13 through 15. And the point is this. The manifestation of the name Yahweh. When that name was manifest to Moses, it was a significant milestone in the preparation of the establishment of Israel. And we'll look at that here in a moment. But I just want you to think through. What do we have here? We have a different name being manifested. In like manner, the manifestation of the name of God the Father by God the Son having come in the flesh is a significant milestone in the preparation for the establishment of the church. I want you to see the parallels. In Exodus 3, Israel was about to be birthed as a nation. They were already a covenant people. They were about to become a covenant nation in the Exodus. And Moses is the type of Christ that's going to lead them out of bondage and establish them as a nation. We have the corollary now with the foundation of the church. Because the church is about to be birthed as a nation. Heavenly nation. And as the church is about to be birthed, not a type of Christ, but Christ Himself, 
is going to be manifesting a particular name. And a name that, sure, it was known beforehand, but the full significance and intimacy of that name was not known beforehand. Not until this new people is formed and created. In like manner, the manifestation of the name of God the Father by God the Son having come in the flesh is a significant milestone in the preparation for the establishment of the church. The church is royal family. Every member of the church is an adult son. All right? An adult son. Full legal standing. It's a significant milestone in the preparation for the establishment of the church. Verse 6, verse 11, verse 12, verse 26. All of these verses here in John 17 about the manifestation of the Father's name. The Father's name. Verse 6, I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world, and they were yours. Your name. Do they not know Father? I can, I can find Father in some Old Testament passages, sure. But not with a degree of significance that we have in the church. Not even close. Verse 11. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. We bear the name of God the Father. Okay. Now think about that. This is this means um, the full the full uh, legal standing in terms of not only son by birth but son by adoption and the the inheritance principles that are found in this. It means you sign his name because you bear his name. You know, how'd you like to have uh, Bill Gates's checkbook or Michael Dell? Let's keep it local. Michael Dell. Okay, lives here in town. <clears throat> and maybe your name is Michael Dell. <laughs> and you get a hold of his checkbook somehow and you write whatever check you want. Well, you're going to go to prison for that. All right. Because it may be that you have an identical name, but it's not the same name as the real Michael Dell. But what if you bear the real name? What if that is bestowed upon you? See, and not just Michael Dell Jr., but Michael Dell. He grants to you that name. That name. Okay? I think culturally we're hampered here because we don't have... Uh, there, there are other cultures that do better in their naming conventions. Whereby, um, I think about in the Oriental world, I think about in, in the Arabic world, I think about... Uh, the, the tribalism of the Jewish world. Your family name is far more important than your given name. I mean, who cares? Your name is Bob. Nobody cares about that. Bolander, okay? That's your surname. That's your family name. That one is the one that you don't want to dishonor. That's the one that you have to uphold the honor of. That's the one that you bear, okay? Or your clan name, even greater than your family name, okay? So understand this. When you bear that name, that you are the... Remember, Jesse was the Ephraimite. What does that mean? Bethlehem Ephrathah? 
And Jesse was the Ephrathite. He was the, the leader of that clan. He was the clan, in a sense. If you're the head, you're the clan. Okay? And nobody else is going to become the head of that clan until Jesse's gone and then the heir steps in. Okay? Like into the Roman system, I wouldn't have any property. I wouldn't have any legal standing. But my father's still alive. The paterfamilia authority resides in the eldest male of the clan. My father's still alive, so I own nothing. Now, yeah, I, uh, I'm married, i got kids, i got a house, but under the Roman system, it all belongs to my dad. And same thing with Matthew, okay? And the girls until they're married. All right. So we bear the name of God the Father. We bear that name. That means we have full legal standing. You know, in, in terms of today, we have something called power of attorney. And if you have full power of attorney, then legally you operate as if you were that person. And you can sign contracts and you can write checks and you can make medical decisions. You can have specialized medical powers of attorney. But just a general overall universal power of attorney, power of attorney is as if you are that person. As if you were. Okay? And Jesus Christ says, I and the Father are one. And you and I are in Him, in the Father, the Father in us. This is a name that we bear. We bear this name. Not because we've earned or deserved it. <laughs> Good heavens, no. But because He has earned and deserved it. Verse 12 says, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Eleven of the twelve were regenerate. Only one was an unbeliever. Called here the son of perdition. A phrase that's only used twice in the Bible. Judas Iscariot is called the son of perdition, and Antichrist is called son of perdition in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Down to verse 26. Verse 25 says, A righteous father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And so based on that, they are going to come to know you. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known. What they have received in his first advent in, uh, incarnation is only a taste, a preview. Really, not much because too much of its mystery, too much of its shadows. But I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known. In the coming church age, believers are going to get far more paterology than any dispensations ever had. Paterology is the doctrine of the Father. So that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. So, we have a parallel. And again, let's just real quickly look back to Exodus chapter 3. I think you're familiar with this, but just in case, Exodus chapter 3. Because this is the corollary. This is the burning bush, and it uh, gets Moses' attention, and Moses goes over, says, take your shoes off, and then he, they have this conversation i can't do it and uh, all this other stuff now 
um, who am I and so forth. Then to verse 13, Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am that I am. I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now I am is not Yahweh. I am is Ayyeh. But it's the meaning and significance behind Yahweh. And we don't have Aye anywhere in Genesis or Exodus leading up to this, but we do have Yahweh in Genesis and Exodus leading up to this. Abraham knew the name Yahweh, but Abraham didn't know the significance of the name Yahweh. And so it's being given here as a memorial name. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, Yahweh, The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. And so the significance, Abraham knew the name Yahweh, but he didn't know what it meant. Didn't know the significance to it. Didn't know why. And God's got a lot of names. He's got El Shaddai, El Elyon, uh, Elohim, the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, all these names. But the significance of Yahweh and the the basis of it in Eye, in I Am. God is the only self-existent being. The only being that does not have a cause. He exists by virtue of His own necessity. He is not a contingent being. He has no cause, no birth, no creation, no origin. An eternal being. The eternal I am. Nobody else can make that statement. On an absolute basis, you cannot. Anything that you can say, I am, you can re-say, I became. Okay? I am married. But that means I became a married man way back when. I am a father, but I became a father. I am a pastor, but I became a pastor. You and I can make no I am statement on an eternal, absolute basis. Anything you tell me I am, I can turn it right around and say you became. And show you a point in time when you weren't what you are now. God is the only I am and I've always been. And this is the significance. The I am that I am. Tell the sons of Israel, I am sent me to you. This is my memorial name. Thus says Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers. The Elohim of Abraham, of of Isaac and Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, my memorial name to all generations. And so this is at the the birthing of the nation of Israel. And Moses is given a significance to Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. A significance to understand Yahweh in a deeper way than the Gentiles ever did in their stewardship. Likewise, the church. At the birth of the church, immediately prior, the name of God the Father, as bestowed on God the Son, as bestowed on us, the Bride of Christ, this name is being unfolded. It's this name in which we operate. We go to the Father in prayer. We do so, you understand, in Jesus' name. We bear that name. All right, we'll have more to say on that. Back to Genesis, back to John 17. 
I manifested your name. I manifested your name to the men, notice now, whom you gave me. Gave. They were yours and you gave them to me. Second time we have gave there in verse 6. They have come to know that everything you have given me. That's our third use of give or gave in verse 7 is from you. And the words which you gave me. That's our fourth use of gave. I have given to them. That's our fifth use of gave. It's a pretty giving verse. It's a pretty given passage. The church is grounded in giving. The church is grounded in giving. Agape giving has no limits. Our position in Christ has given us everything. Israel featured giving. And it was a minimum and it was a have to. The church is grounded in giving. And there is no minimum because it's an infinite maximum. And it's not a have to, it's a want to. It's a want to that's shaped by the transformation of agape love. God so agape, agapao, loved the world that he gave. Christ so agapaoed the church that he gave. You and I are instruments of agape love. We are to give. Greater love has no, man than, no one than this than one lay down his life. Giving. So this is point two in his prayer celebration regarding his disciples. The church is grounded in giving. Look at all those verses in John 17 that have give, gave, given. Verse 6, 7, 8, 9, 11, 12, 14. I didn't even read all of them. I stopped, didn't I? Hmm. Six, seven, eight, nine, eleven, twelve, fourteen. Go into your software and create a visual filter for every time the didomy verb or the giving verb here shows up. I think it's didomy. And then spotlight it. Make uh, words of giving in uh, green or something, right? And, and see uh, how much of this red turns green when you create your visual filter. It just jumps out the page at you. All right. So it's giving. You gave them to me. You gave them to me. Everything you have given me is from you. The words which you gave me, I have given to them. See, that right there is your biggest clue on what the church is all about. It's not about what we've received. It's more blessed to give than to receive. You receive words from God, give those words to somebody else. You receive comfort from God, give that comfort to somebody else. You receive grace from God, give that grace to somebody else. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you act like you did not receive it? God gave it to you. Give it to somebody else. Um, again, verse 8, verse 9. I ask on their behalf, I don't ask on behalf of the world, but on, on those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, when you give something, does that mean it's not yours anymore? See, we still belong to the Father even though He's given us to the Son. We're in unity with both the Father and the Son. We're held in the Father's right hand. We're held in the Son's right hand. 
When you give grace to your brother, or you give comfort to your sister, are you, are you cheapened? Are you lessened? Are you diminished? Are you somehow inferior? Do you lose because you've given agape love? No. You're actually gaining. You are, it's greater to give than to receive. Your capacity, your cup is increased all the more. Verse 11, verse 12, verse 14. There's the giving in your name, the name which you have given me in verse 11. Your name which you have given me in verse 12. The giving of that name. All right. Agape giving has no limits. Our position in Christ has given us everything. What does Ephesians 1.3 say? Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? I'm going to misquote it, so let me, <laughs> let me back up and double check. Blessed be the one who has given us, who has blessed us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with quite a few things. Who has blessed us with a lot. Who has blessed us with every, every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. What do we not have? Nothing. Because what do we have? Everything. All things necessary for life and godliness. Everything. Every perfect gift. Every good thing bestowed. Not one good thing does God withhold from those who love Him. Not one good thing. So, you realize why our love falls short because our love draws lines. Our love says, well, okay. Yeah, I'll love you, but only this far. Or you've got to scratch my back first. Or uh, up to this point. I'm not crossing that line. I'm not even going there. Because my love has a limit. <laughs> the moment I say that, the moment I think that, the moment my heart attitude starts to spark thoughts of that nature, I've abandoned love. I'm no longer in agape love. Agape does not take into account the merit of the object. Agape is 100% motivated by the character of the one loving. It has no limits. Our position in Christ has given us everything. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him. Our election is in Christ. It is in Christ and on no other basis are we chosen by God the Father. Before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Again, that's in love. 1 Corinthians 3, 21-23, all things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. It keeps us from being arrogant on behalf of one against the other. We don't get selfish about, well, you have yours, I have mine, and keep your hands off. Alright. And uh, I have mine, and it's more than yours because I'm special. (laughs) You're some kind of loser Christian. Come on, grow up. Get doctrine. God will bless you too. No. Let no one boast. No one boast in men. All things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the word of life or death or all things present or things to come, all things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. 
The church is grounded in giving and this agape giving has no limits. Our position in Christ has given us everything. We'll come back next week and we're going to see how the church is apostolic. The Father apostoloed the Son. The Son apostoloed His disciples. The apostles wrote the New Testament and established the church. Every church member is a sent one. And finally, truth. The mandatory survival skill in the church is sanctification in the truth. Sanctification in the truth. It is the mandatory survival skill. We are no longer of the world, but we're still in the world. And this world will eat us up if we are not sanctified in the truth then we will, be trans- we will be conformed to this world. Our thinking will be corrupted as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Your minds will be corrupted, led astray from the simplicity and purity of Christ. Mandatory survival skill in the church is sanctification in the truth. That's why in so many cases I don't care. When people leave here and they go to whatever church they're going to go to, I don't care what church they go to as long as they're in the truth. Being the truth. There's good churches, bad churches, and everything in between, but don't care about their music, don't care about their programs, don't care about their singles group, youth group, blah, blah, blah. Do they teach the truth? Are you sanctified in the truth, saturated by consistent teaching? Well, that's where we're going to go with it next week. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for a flock of believers that hunger after the truth. Thank you for uh, <laughs> thank you for uh, brothers and sisters that had put up with this knucklehead for 400 classes in Life of Christ, Father. Um, we're here to learn a little bit here, a little bit there, line upon line, precept upon precept. And I thank you for it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.